0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It's great to be here in Erie. It's my first time here, and uh, I like it. (laughs) Um, Pastor Mark asked me, he gave me a very short brief. He just basically said, preach on uh, a superhero or something like that. And um, I teach the Old Testament. That is uh, uh, my job um, during the week. And so, what better person to talk about than David um, in particular the story of David and Goliath? That's kind of you know the quintessential superhero story right um so uh it, it's it's a bit difficult asking an Old Testament professor to talk about you know I geek out over things like this, so there's all sorts of things I would love to say um But anyway, hopefully, here's the one thing I want you guys to do. Uh, We all know this story really, 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 really well, right? We've heard it from infancy. And one of the things I'd like to challenge you to do this morning is just kind of try as best you can to open up your Bibles. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's the story of David and Goliath. And because it's so familiar, I want to just challenge you to try and clear your mind of whatever it is that, you know, visual picture you have of David and Goliath, and read the word of God afresh. Uh, I don't have time to, to read the whole story because it's quite long, and I've been given um, a very specific number of minutes to talk. Um, but anyway, uh, open up your Bibles. Let me pray as we begin, and we'll look at this text together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. May the Holy Spirit indeed fill this place. May the Holy Spirit be our great teacher this morning. Wherever we are in life today, whatever burdens we bring, Lord, would you speak into our lives through your word. We know that it is powerful. We know that it is life-giving, and so we ask that you would breathe life into us through this word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Franklin D. Roosevelt coined probably one of the most famous expressions in American history. You probably know this. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Right? This was uttered in the 1932, I believe, inaugural speech. The country was falling apart. Financial crisis hit America like no other time. People were literally panicking, taking their money out of the banks, jobs. I know job loss is a big deal in the Rust Belt. You feel it here acutely and eerie, but it's nothing like it was back then. And so Roosevelt, trying to assuage the fears of the people, he said... The only thing we have to fear is fear. And this is exactly, he says, don't succumb to it. In his own words, don't succumb to nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which will paralyze needed efforts. Needless to say, it was a time of fear. If we fast forward 86 years to now, to the present day, I don't think that much has changed. We live in a culture of fear. Psychologists have written on this. Historians, sociologists, they've all noted that the current environment that you and I live in today, we still live in this culture of fear, perhaps even more pernicious, perhaps even more cynical. Fear-mongering is a word that is now part of our vocabulary. We like to scare people, in other words. Politicians use fear to try to garner support. If you elect that person, they're going to take your jobs away, right? If you um, elect that person, he's going to take away your rights, your guns. Yeah, it doesn't matter which side. It's how politicians work now. Advertisements during election season, we get so sick of them, right? Corporations, they make billions and billions of dollars playing the fear psychology. You've got news outlets that just love making hay out of fear-based news. They love to, to lead news, North Korea, terrorism, right? School shootings, abductions, murders, natural disasters. That's what you hear because it sells. We have this sort of... Weird love of fear and hate of fear. Then, of course, on, per- on a personal level, I don't know about you, um, but I struggle with this. We all struggle with fear. Fear of death. Fear of illness. Cancer. Financial problems. Fear of failure in relationships. Divorce. <laughs> Just name it. Every aspect of life, fear can grip us. How do we deal with fear? What does the Bible have to say about how we can address fear in an appropriate and biblical way? That's what I want us to think about. And believe it or not, the story of David and Goliath actually addresses that. It's one of the best places to turn to, to think about fear. There are two ways that this story does this. The first is by showing us how not to do it. it. Shows us how the rest of the world deals with fear. And as Christians, then, it will offer you a better alternative, a better way to handle fear. Those are the two things that I want us to chiefly look at this morning. So in 1 Samuel 17, if you look at it, Um, The first half in particular, you will see it very clearly. Fear is the overriding sentiment. Um, Saul is terrified. Absolutely terrified. He's the king who is elected to basically um, drive out fear. To drive out the Philistines, the Amorites, and all the other threats. And he's hiding in his tent. Absolutely petrified. The Israelites, so look at verse 11. Saul and the Israelites were dismayed. It literally means they lost their courage. That's how it should read. They lost their courage and they were terrified. And if you look at verse 24, it tells us that the Israelites, when they saw him, they all ran. That's how scared they were. They ran from him in great fear. Right? Fear. What makes matters worse, so we'll talk about that here. What are they actually afraid of? They're afraid of a guy called Goliath. We all know him, right? This giant, nine feet tall. Uh, I said in the first service that some people actually think he's six foot nine. And it's a very, very complicated reason why that may be the case. But that's not the point of the sermon. He was big, right? He's huge. Nine feet feet—it's huge. I'm five eight, okay? And that's being charitable. So nine feet tall is huge. And the guy can, he literally is, he's got on his body 125 pounds of bronze armor. He's got the highest technological advancements in that bronze Iron Age time period. A bit like Iron Man, okay? In the old times. He's got a spear that has a point. The tip of the spear weighs 25 pounds. But I can barely do one of these with 25. He's chucking spears with a 25 pound point. Okay. Of steel, of iron. And if you look at from verse 4 onwards, it just goes on and on and on and on, talking about the shaft of his spear, weaver's beam, shackles of iron, shield before had to go before him because his shield was so heavy. Someone had to carry his sh- and the details just are endless. It is the single most longest description of a, of a person's sort of military, you know, garb. And the point of it is really to tell us, Goliath is an incomparable war machine. No one had ever seen anything like it. Something to be afraid of, right? It's supposed to engender fear in you when you read this. That's what this narrative is trying to do. And if that's not enough pressure, the fate of the nation depends on what happens in this chapter. That's actually the more terrifying thing. It'd be one thing if the Israelites, as an army, said, here is this behemoth of a man. Let's think of creative ways to take him down. We'll get like our best nimble, sealed, you know, like whatever guys who can come in furtively and attack him from. You let's think of creative ways to take him down. That wasn't on the table. That option's off. Because if you look at verses 8 and 9, this is actually recorded in Roman period and ancient warfare. This is one of the ways that they did war. There are two mountains. Philistines are on one side. Israelites are on the other. And then down in the middle is a valley. It's called the Valley of Elah. If you go to the uh, uh, the, the Bible Museum, is that right, in Washington, D.C.? They at least had this whole... Special thing where he could go see real artifacts from the Valley of Elah. Okay. And Goliath would come down from his side of the mountain twice a day for 40 days. He would go to the valley and then he would basically call on Israel to send someone to fight. And whoever wins that fight wins the fight for the whole nation, the whole army. Okay. Verse four. Of your English, in your English Bibles, most of your translations, I think, say something like, Goliath was a champion. The word champion. A bit strange. He hasn't won anything yet. Why is he called a champion? Okay. And the explanation, actually, if you read it in the Hebrew, it says something like, Goliath was the man in between or the man in the middle. Okay. He's sort of a representative that is sent out. And like I said, he's calling on Israel, send out your man in the middle so that we can fight. And whoever wins, the other guys become our slaves. Very cost-effective way to do war. Two people, the fate of the whole nation, right? It's pretty incredible. I'm trying to say is if there ever was a fearful situation for the Israelites, this would have been it. Not only because of Goliath, but because Israel's future depends on this moment. And so I want to come back to the question I asked at the beginning. How do we respond when we're faced with fear? When we're faced with insurmountable difficulties? Because this is certainly, I mean, you you just think about it. It just blows your mind. Most of the sermons I've heard on this story go something like this. This is a story about courage, right? It's a story about human bravery at against all odds, the underdog who's facing the giant. And really, the, the question they ask next is what is your Goliath? Have you heard that? Okay? What is your Goliath? Is it, is it your boss? Is it the bully in school? Is it the voices in your head that keep telling you you're nothing? Right? All the things that beat you down. What's your Goliath? Visualize it. Overcome it. Something like that. And it's basically all that kind of thinking is, is, is self-help rhetoric that's designed to make you feel good about yourself. And to sort of, you know, overcome whatever it is you're, you're, you're frightened of. But you know what? That's like putting a band-aid on a problem that's going to come up time and time and time again. And the reason why that advice, it's a good piece of advice, right? I get it. You know, overcome your giant, be courageous. The reason why that that doesn't work here is because Goliath is not the personification of our fears. Goliath is an evil man who has spurned God. He is mocking God, and there is nothing good about him. He represents the worst of this world, in a sense. In fact, not only does he not represent our fears, if anything, he gives us a model for how ungodly people deal with fear. Think about it. In verse 42, he kind of does exactly what the world does when they're approached with difficult circumstances. Verse forty two says this And when the Philistine, that's Goliath, when the Philistine, when he looked and when he saw David, that's really important. When he looked and saw David, he mocked him, he disdained him, for he was just a Naar which is a Hebrew word for someone who is not yet of military sort of level doesn't mean that he was a boy as all the you know little children's bible say doesn't he wasn't even a teenager he's probably in his late 20s okay but he was a Naar, not- he was inexperienced in battle that's essentially what that text is saying he was ruddy and handsome he was a pretty boy doesn't have the scars on him right that's who he was. And so he saw that was visible to him. And that's what made him laugh. He said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Is this is a joke. Who is this? How does he handle fears? How does Goliath, what's his approach to handling the challenge before him? Well, as Goliath's opponent draws closer, right? The man in the middle approaches him. Text tells us he looks at the exterior. He looks at David's size, his appearance, the lack of weapons. That's what he looks at. What is visible to him. Can't even handle Saul's armor. He's got a stick and some stones. That's what Goliath sees. And if you read the entire book of First and Second Samuel, you will know that the appearance of man is a huge theme. Starting from Hannah's prayer all the way through, especially the search for a king. The Israelites wanted a king, and they were all going on what they could see. In chapter 16, the immediately previous verse, right? God says to uh, Samuel, the prophet, Go find my king. And so God leads him to the place, Jesse's house, right? You may know the story. Jesse struts out his sons, except one's missing, David. And Samuel sees even the man of God. He looks at the boys, right? The sons of Jesse. And he says, he sees one guy in particular who just jumps out at him. Tall, it's a hunk of meat. He looks like the guy that can lead Israel on, right? Eliab is his name. And Samuel even says, surely this is God's anointed man. And then there's this incredible line where God responds to him. Listen to this. But the Lord said to Samuel, O Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance. Do you hear that? But the Lord looks on the heart. And it's not just Samuel, Jesse, David's father. Think about this. David's father does not think much of his son either. Scrawny probably. And so he says, you know, why don't you go tend to the sheep? Go do something else and let your brothers who have much more capability, who appear on the outside to be someone of significance, let your brothers go to war. Do the glamorous thing. Eliab, his older brother, if you keep reading chapter 16, you will see that he is a man who is absolutely obsessed with his appearance what people think of him. He is driven by what is visible and he's a a CV building type of guy. And that's probably the reason why when um, Jesse sends David to go take supplies to his older brothers, who's the one that mocks him? Eliab, the older brother says to him, who did you leave to tend those few sheep that your dad told you to go watch? It's very patronizing. It's a fascinating interaction right Right at the heart of this David and Goliath story. And I, I'm running through all of those things to basically help you see that this is the way that the world deals with things, right? This is the way that the world understands things. When you face fears, when you face those big, insurmountable uh, times in your life, the world tells us that the secret to overcoming fear, the secret to a successful life is to compensate for our weaknesses by being visibly impressive, right? By having the right appearance and image. Be, on, be the best that you can be. Be, uh, you know, build yourself up so that you are, you can sort of like take courage, focus on abilities, focus on your skills, focus on your assets. That's what the world tells us. Things that are visible, tangible, measurable. That's the way of the world. And dare I say, it's also the way that American Christians think you travel the world, and you see less wealthy cultures and, and how Christians live their lives there, I think we, we would probably be, be ashamed. What's the alternative? What's the biblical answer to how we should address fear and immense challenges? Uh, the solution is there in chapter 17. It's found in David, but perhaps not the way that you've thought of it before. Some of you may have. Um, let me put it this way. God does not give terrified people an example to follow. That's the usual way that this is taught, right? God does not give terrified people an example to follow. Um, I think that would be weak of God to do that. Let me give you an example. Um, Imagine that you are a football player. Some of you like to daydream, right? We all know this. You're like the pitcher on the mound at the bottom of the ninth or whatever. But imagine you're, you're, you're a football player. Um, and imagine that, choose whatever team you like. I'm, I don't want to get into that whole mess. I'm from Boston, so I know I have a lot of haters. Um, but imagine that you're in the game and your star quarterback has gone down. Your coach calls you to the side, says you're going to have to play quarterback. You're down six, two minutes to go, season's on the line. And then he pulls out an iPad and he shows you a little YouTube clip of Tom Brady marching down and doing one of his famous, just bear with me, it's a New England thing, right? And then he says, go follow likewise. Be Tom Brady. It's not going to really help you, is it? Watching a YouTube clip of someone, you know? Um, I don't know, maybe you guys are amazing at football. For me, I would still be scared to death. God doesn't give terrified people an example to follow. You know what he does? God gives terrified people a savior. He gives them a champion. He gives them a man in between. To use that analogy, he gives you, he supplies you the star quarterback. Puts you on his shoulders, march down the field, and win that victory. That's what he gives you. He's not someone we're supposed to follow in this story. We are not David. I want you to sort of rewrite that in your mind. We are actually the Israelites. We are the people watching this scene. We are terrified and facing a situation that by all indications, by human conventional wisdom is absolutely impossible. But what does God give us? He gives the people someone who will take their place and fight their battles. Do you see how this is the the complete antithesis to the other model where we are to somehow become like David and fix all of our weaknesses and overcome ourselves, all of our problems in life. That's not the model that God gives us. God says, we have a man in the middle, our man in the middle. And so the question for us as we read this text is, when faced with fear, will you trust in God's provision for a champion? Or are you going to fight your own battles? Will we cry out despite our weaknesses, despite our shortcomings, will we cry out like David who said, the battle belongs to the Lord. Or are we going to look to external things? It's what Saul did. It's what the Israelites did. It's even what Goliath did. Those are only two options, friends. We can say and trust that God has given us a champion who will fight in our stead. Or you have to fight the battle alone. There's a second question I want to uh, have you guys think about. And it's this, this very briefly, how do we respond when God's honor is at stake? Because it's one of the big, big things here, right in the middle of this story. If you follow the story of David, it's really remarkable to me that he's actually pretty content. The, the narrative, the story doesn't tell us much about what David thought Uh, especially in the first half in chapter 16, put yourself in David's situation. You're one of the sons of Jesse, a, a wealthy patriarch. Your father thinks you're a runt. All your other brothers are doing great important things. And by all indications, he humbly obediently obeys his father, takes care of the sheep, you know, takes the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to his brothers. who are fighting up on the hill. Nothing in the text says he was itching to go to war. Then there's a turning point in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. As he talked with the soldiers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And here's the line, and David heard him. Forty days, twice a day, this Goliath came, and what was he doing? What was he doing? He is insulting the name of God. He is saying, this Yahweh of yours, he's nothing. My God, Dagon, gives me all the strength, and look at us Philistines, and look at you cowards. And he's insulting the name of God, dragging God's name through the mud. And that is exactly where things change. David um, in verse 26, listen to these words. This is absolutely phenomenal. Listen very carefully. And David said to the men, uh, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from uh, Israel Um, for who, is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. That's powerful, isn't it? And it's so powerful that it actually goes all the way to Saul in verse 31. Saul actually even is sort of encouraged by this. See David's motivation in fighting this battle. It was not so that he could get into the limelight. He kind of didn't care about this until God's name was being reviled for him. It was all about God. Saul never got that. And he never would because he's always focused on this, right? A few years ago, um, I should probably give you the, uh, we lived in England for about 10 years. We're very recent transplants back to America uh so i taught at a seminary in in london for about 7 years and um so we uh, you if you know anything about the english they're crazy about soccer okay and uh, you got to you know you got to pick your team and it it just gets i mean you think uh, football fandom is bad go watch videos of riots and crazy things going on in the english premier league and especially the lower leagues i mean they it's it's really bloody but uh you won't be surprised then that that my third son who's 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 the jock in the family loves the soccer he was invited to a soccer birthday party in a really fancy indoor arena and all these kids were playing games you know for like 2 hours you know it's great as parents because they get their energy out and you think they're going to sleep well um and then they're sitting down having pizza and this bully of a kid uh sits next to my son and he starts accusing him of cheating right in british like Cockney accent started saying you were doing this and tripping. And I watched all the games and I know my son and I know he did nothing of the sort. And it took everything in me to hold back and not sort of like wring this kid's neck. Right? Because my son is just being impugned. And I took it personally. We are quick to defend those that we love If someone spoke of your mother, father negatively, you would step up. But I wonder, is that how you respond when God's name is being dragged through the mud? Is that how you respond? Are you offended when God is mocked, when God is ridiculed, or are you going to cower back, slink away? Have you become like, Saul and Eliab and the Israelites where you're so preoccupied with your own reputation and standing in society. You're so busy thinking about self-preservation such that God's honor and his name is an afterthought. You're not willing to go there. David cannot stand the degradation of God's name. And that's what propels him into action. It's really important to understand that. And this contented shepherd becomes a fearless warrior. Nothing is going to stop him now. Not the insults of Goliath. Not the patronizing, just really evil brother, Eliab. Not even Saul who discourages him. Everybody discourages him. He's going to go straight on. And he's going to deal with this Goliath figure. Why? Because... It's a little line in there. It's so important. David knows that Goliath's gods are nothing. He knows that Goliath is all just going off of what he sees, but he knows that his God, Yahweh, is a living God. One of the great themes of the Old Testament. God is the only true God. You go back to Egypt. And all the plagues. You know what all those were about? It's not about Moses and Pharaoh. It's about Yahweh demonstrating to all the Egyptian gods. re Heket, Horus, you name it. These are not gods at all. God is the only true God. Yahweh is the only true God. Because he is the creator. And then even later on in history with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. This is a lesson time and time again. God is trying to teach the Israelites, I am the only true God. All the other gods are false idols. And that's what is at the heart of this passage. And he knew that. David knew that. He knew the history. He knew that God miraculously delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. The waters that came and flooded the greatest known military in history, the Egyptians, just like that, disposed. He knew the conquest stories, how Jericho, without a single sword, was toppled. How Moses' hands raised up, conquered the Canaanites. And city after city, story after story, time and time again, Israel knew their story. The battle is the Lord's. If we trust in God, he goes before us. If we don't make ourselves the heart of the story, we'll be victorious, whatever happens, right? That's that's the, that's the big story, I think, in the Old Testament. And David's a man who knows this deep, deep, deep down in his heart. That's what propels him. He had an intimate knowledge of this creator God, the living God, and he knew that Yahweh is the only true God. He, this knowledge is, is, is what ends up, uh, empowering David to ultimately take Goliath over. We don't have time to get into that bit of the story. It's fascinating. I could, all sorts of interesting things going on there. Um, I know the text says he was hit up here. It's possible he was actually hit in the shins. Believe it or not, the word for forehead and shins is exactly the same. There are all sorts of crazy things in here, but the point is, David ends up conquering Goliath because of his trust in who God is. But as great as David is, you also know if you've read the rest of these stories of David, he's actually pretty, uh, he's not the most um, holier-than-thou-art type person, is he? He has his falls and slip-ups, commits adultery, commits murder. He then, you know, is not so great a parent. His sons are pretty horrific. And later on, as he's dying on his deathbed, he gives his son Solomon terrible advice, tells him, go kill all of, all of your, you know, the people who might threaten you. Don't know if you picked up on that. And, you know, the, the way that the Old Testament portrays David is, he was a great king, no question about it. But he was also not the perfect king. And so all through the Old Testament, you know, you're going to see a a desire for a great David. Now, this leads me to my last point. This story leads us to Jesus. It makes us want Jesus. And let me give you two reasons why I think that. The first is a little bit strange, but I need you to sort of hang with me. Um, If you look at verse 54 of uh, chapter 17, Um, After he uh, takes out Goliath's sword, I think Goliath was still alive. He then basically decapitates him, right? Takes the skull, right? And he takes it to Jerusalem. That's what the text tells us. And it says that uh, David took the head of Goliath, brought it to Jerusalem. The question is why? Why is that detail put in there? That the head was taken to Jerusalem, the answer to that, you've got to go outside uh, the book of Samuel. And in fact, if you've got to go to the New Testament. The very beginning of the New Testament begins how? It begins with a genealogy. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then it says, the son of David. Then it you know, gives you a whole litany of names to trace, to show you how Jesus is directly linked to David. That's how the New Testament begins. Fascinating, isn't it? And it also says, the son of Abraham. And we know that in Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has an epic battle. And everyone sort of thinks that Abraham is the one that is this incredible warrior. But Abraham wants people to know that he is not the source, the reason why he won that battle. So he takes the booty, the, the, uh, the plunder of that war, and he takes it up to a high priest in Jerusalem called Melchizedek. Really weird, enigmatic story, okay? Okay. That's for another day. But David seems to do the exact same thing. He's conquered the great Goliath. Everyone sort of hails him as the leader. What does he do? He takes the skull, the memorial from that battle, and he takes it to Jerusalem. And this is a common thing. When David finally defeats another enemy, He does the same thing. He takes the plunder and the text tells us later that he takes the plunder and puts it in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, If you fast forward 1000 years, the new Testament says that the crucifixion of our Lord and savior takes place at a place called Golgotha, which in Aramaic means the skull slightly bizarre but here's the crazy thing every single gospel mentions that detail jesus was crucified at golgotha and they every single gospel goes to great lengths to explain by the way that means in aramaic that means the place of the skull that's where jesus was crucified why are we hearing about jesus dying on a spot that is called the skull some people say that it's because the hill is shaped like a skull, and that's absolute nonsense. We know that the little eye socket where ostensibly there are holes where, you know, like the skull, that's erosion from limestone, which happened probably in the medieval period. Okay? But tourists love that. Tour guides love it because they can tell this looks like a skull. Um, there are other theories, but I think the reason why... Uh, the new Testament writers tell us is they're trying to connect the death of Jesus with David. Let me give you the second reason. I think maybe it'll come together a little bit, even if that's outlandish, here's what the new Testament sees. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of David in the old Testament. Think about it this way. If you're a new Testament person reading the scriptures, the focus of the old Testament has been entirely about God's covenantal relationship with Abraham and David. And so what the new Testament does is try to identify that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things in the old Testament. That's what it's doing. The old Testament is the Holy scriptures that Jesus read Jesus even says in Luke chapter 24, all of these things that are written in the old Testament are about me. And he chides and rebukes those disciples on the road to Emmaus by saying, why are you surprised? You know that I had to die and be raised. This was all written in here. You should know about this. The old Testament also is obsessed with David. Not King David, another David. Let me read you a couple of texts. Ezekiel chapter 34 says this, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And I, Yahweh, I'm going to be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Now, here's the problem. David's been dead for 500 years when this was written. Who's Ezekiel talking about? Who's this David Isaiah chapter 11 also written about 400 years after David died. It's all of a sudden this crazy image this prophetic image of a um, shoot. That's going to come out of a branch and it's the stump of Jesse. Okay, think of a stump a felled tree stump. That's Jesse. And Isaiah 11 has this messianic prophecy that out of Jesse shall come a shoot that is going to be David and the spirit of the Lord will be upon this David, right? And then you've got Psalm after Psalm after Psalm that we know are messianic Psalms about David. What am I saying? All of the old Testament. Okay. A lot of these old Testament texts, I think with the new Testament writers, they knew David fought a battle of champions. They knew that through David's victory, all of Israel wins and they are free. And the New Testament writers make this connection with David's son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself also makes this connection in case you're still skeptical. On the cross, Jesus says a lot of things, right? He's dying on the cross and we are told through the gospels that he says a variety of things such as "lamach, lamach Sabachtani, right? My God, my God, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? There's these random descriptions of Jesus saying, I thirst. So the narrators then tell us vinegar was given to him. And then at the end, for example, he says, what? What are the very last words he utters? It is finished. Okay? Now, all of these words are from a psalm. Psalm 22, a psalm of David. The psalm ends, by the way, Psalm 22, with words that are very similar to it is finished. For it is done. That's how Psalm 22 ends. All of this to say... David is a type of Jesus. Jesus himself sees. He knows that he is the perfect king. He's the second David. He's the greater David. And you see there at the foot of the cross, as the champion of champions is dying the death as the middle person on at that place called the skull he is bringing about the greatest deliverance for human beings, right? He is the champion of the world who destroys death. He destroys sin. And he sets free all those who are held bondage by sin and death. Tim Keller, well-known pastor in New York City, he puts it so brilliantly. Listen to this. He says, David saved his people at the risk of his life, but Jesus saved people at the cost of his life. David went into the shadow of the Valley of death. Jesus experienced death and conquered it on the cross. How do we handle our fears? The answer is not in us. The answer is not about us being courageous or embettering us. That is the Goliath way. What this story is teaching us is that we are to look to the champion of champions, the one who wins the greatest battle of all, or to put it in New Testament terms, we are to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. You could almost say you are, we are to fix our eyes on the champion and perfecter of our faith. That's where we're to find comfort, isn't it? And Pastor Mark has asked me to preach on the top topic of hero. You've seen the little video clip there too, but you know what's interesting in this great story of the, of the one that we kind of look as the greatest hero of all, David? Who is actually the hero? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the one who shows us true courage, and he shows us, That the way to overcome fear is not to avoid fear. This is why I disagree with all due respect with Franklin Roosevelt. We don't have to fear, you know, we have a champion who will help us face our fears. It's a self confidence in knowing that the Father's will is good. It's being able to trust that all things are in God's care, that he is in control of every detail of our life. Let me just end with this, this picture of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus faced his, his most fearful moment in the garden. What did he do? He doesn't try to deny the fact that things are fearful. He expresses his fears to his father, doesn't he? He prays to the Father. And what does he say? If it's possible, take this cup from me. We have a Savior who has experienced fear to that degree. But after wrestling with fear, do you know what he does? He submits. He submits to God the Father, to the all-wise one. And he says, Not my will, but your will be done. And then what does he do? He walks right in to death itself. And he conquers it. No matter what you're struggling with in life, no matter what fears you may be dealing with, and I am certain that some of you are wrestling with all kinds of fears. Can I just encourage you? Look to the ultimate champion, the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in what he has done for you. I'm gonna read um, just the words, famous words that echo a very similar refrain from Paul. Listen to these words as we close. Then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God Is the God of hosts, of armies. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no. In all of these things we are more than what? Conquerors. Through Christ who loved us, and so I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope, isn't it? Let me pray, Heavenly Father. We are so grateful for this story of David. We're so grateful that in it, we learn not about how David overcame his insecurities or his fears. Thank you that in this story, we see that you are the great warrior, that you are the one who fights our battles on behalf of us. And Lord, it is my prayer for all of us, myself included, that we would learn to trust in the champion that has been given and provided for us. Would you help us, Heavenly Father, not to trust ourselves? We know how that ends. Please help us to love the Lord Jesus more, to embrace him as our great champion. Thank you for all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Thank you also, Lord, for the Uh, incredible material blessings you've bestowed upon us. And so, Father, as we give back, would you give us grateful hearts? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.